Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey everybody, big day, big week. Do I say that a lot? I really mean it this time. I always mean it, but this time it's especially special. Especially special? Yep, you bet it is. It's May 25th. That's when this is being uploaded. I don't know when you're downloading it and listening, but if you happen to be listening to this on May 25th, that means it's my birthday. So happy birthday to me! Wow, thank you. So much, guys. You sounded so sincere the way that you said that. Um, it also means it's the one-year anniversary of me breaking both of my feet. Boo. Never cared for birthdays too much. Anyway, now I especially don't like them. Here's what I do like is I have an album coming out um, now. Uh, it's coming out technically on May 26th. It's called My Big Break. It's going to be on iTunes and Amazon, and if you go to my website, shanemoss.com, there will be a lot more information for you. I'll be posting stuff on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Too much stuff, probably. Sorry about that. Sorry for blowing up your feed, but this one is real important to me. Um, Not only is it, uh, does it, uh, you know, I talk about breaking my feet, and it's a very personal thing. a a lot more personal stuff than my past material but uh what's most exciting for me and for i imagine listeners of this podcast is i figured out how to make science work and stand up finally um i i'm super pumped about it it's really good i'm just so happy with it you know i had my netflix special mating season which i'm very thankful for but i would probably change lots of things about it if i got to do it over again um and this this one i feel so strongly about i'm i'm so excited about it and um uh, yeah so i'm not sure if it's out on spotify yet or or not um on, on may 26th i'll be posting all that stuff on facebook and twitter i'm recording this message days ahead of time so it's it's going to um be a little while before I have a little more info. However, if it's May 25th and you're listening right now, tune in tonight if you have XM Satellite Radio because they will be airing a a preview of it, or actually playing the album all the way through two times, one at 7 and one at 10 
uh, p.m. And go and check that out. It's going to be good stuff. My guest today went and watched my act, and um, so it's peer-reviewed. Well, not we're not peers because I um, tell jokes to make drunks laugh, and she cures cancer. So it's uh, it's close. It's pretty much the same thing. But um, but anyway, I I'm so excited, and. I hope you guys are as well, and I'm going to be releasing a bonus Here We Are podcast episode tomorrow just to get more content out there. Um, A lot of you guys have been asking for more, and so you're getting it. Um, I'm also wanting to give my album some more plugs, so I wanted to get another bonus episode out this week, so look for that as well, and um, please enjoy this episode and let's go find out how to cure some cancer. Sounds good, right? Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm super excited. I'm doing my third interview in a row for the first time ever. I've never done three in a row. So write write me and tell me um, if, if you think I was groggy or not. I'm feeling good right now. I'm real excited. Um, here with me is Athena Actippus. Which I've been practicing you got saying right. her last name over and over again uh, like a fool. I always feel like an idiot trying to pronounce anyone's name that I'm not familiar with um, because it is not my forte. And I am here in... Where am I? What is this? Uh, what, what department is this? Well, this is a... Um, I'm at Arizona State University. You're at Arizona I think State. I already yeah, mentioned that. Yeah, and this is the... Schwada classroom and office building and it's partially psychology and partially engineering and we're in the new suite that has you know health behavior type research in it health and behavior uh that's interesting because you you fall into um an odd kind of category of of study um it, you were explaining to me can um can you just recap kind of what your history was how you got into what you're doing now um because you now study cancer and you took kind of an odd route to get there yeah um i actually used to think that cancer and cell biology was really boring i couldn't imagine you know, studying it. And myself, you know, 10 years ago would probably be astonished to know that about half of my work now is actually on cancer biology. Um, but myself 10 years ago would be way more shocked about where we are sitting (laughs) than than you, but go on. Yeah. So I've always been really interested in evolutionary approaches to behavior. Even when I was in high school, I would like go to my local bookstore and read whatever I could find about it. So um, when I got to college, I had the opportunity to take courses in evolution and behavior and um, 
then went to graduate school in psychology, uh, looking at the evolution of cooperation. Uh, and at that point, um, a lot of my work was computer modeling of you know, how is cooperation um, maintained, how is it stable, what kinds of strategies promote cooperation. Um, and I realized I wanted to get more um, training and exposure to evolutionary theory and ecological theory. So I did a postdoc in ecology and evolutionary biology at that point, um, actually at the University of Arizona, our you know ASU competitor. But uh, um, it was great. And um, my postdoc advisor was uh, John Pepper, who had worked on evolution of cooperation and also um, cancer evolution. And I started getting really interested in cancer evolution at that point, um, mostly because uh, I started to realize that cells were fascinating entities. They weren't just, you know, little, uh, you know, bags of material obeying physical laws, but they're actually evolving and behaving and processing information and responding to their environments and the ecological pressures and the evolutionary dynamics. It was just this whole kind of, you know, world opened up for me in terms of what's happening inside our bodies over the course of our own lifetimes. So can we back up a, a little bit? Yeah. To um, when you talk about when when you were first learning about uh, or studying cooperation using computer models, uh, and what are you talking about? How do you study cooperation using um, computer models? Are you talking about like game theory stuff? Yeah, or? I'm talking about game theory type stuff. So you know, my work kind of comes out. We of... haven't talked a bunch about game theory. Yeah. On, on this podcast yet. So okay. Anything uh, like. Sure. Some 101 general stuff that you can set up would be terrific. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I'd say my work kind of comes out of the tradition of like Axelrod's work on the evolution of cooperation, where he you know, basically set up this um, computer program for having people play different strategies against each other in a, in a prisoner's dilemma, which is this sort of, um, you know, prototypical social dilemma where there's two players and each of them can choose either cooperate or defect. And if they both cooperate, they get a pretty good outcome. Um, If they both defect, they both get a not so good outcome. Um, But if one cooperates and the other defects, then the defector gets a big payoff and the cooperator gets screwed. So um, this sort of framework has been used to, you know, look at lots of different kinds of situations where there's opportunities for cooperation but also exploitation um and uh in fact you know during the cold war it was kind of a big um you know uh idea or tool that people used for considering some of the issues that were at play there so yeah this is yeah. where like tit for tat exactly comes from. exactly yeah yeah so tit for tat was the strategy that one in Axelrod's, um, you know, sort of initial uh, round robin games when he had all these, you know, strategies playing against each other, and you know, for tat is what it sounds. It's you know, I do to you what you did to me in the last time period, and uh, yeah, and that did better than all the other strategies. Um, you know, more complicated, much more complicated ones included. 
And so what what computer modeling were you doing? Well, this was how many years ago? Um, because this this will have this advanced quite a bit since Axelrod's. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I started working on um, agent based models when I was an undergrad. Um, I really wanted to kind of you know get into the game, so to speak, with running. Um, the you know prisoner's dilemma game trying out different strategies and i do you play board games by chance i i like board games and yeah i like making up games too so i think that probably is part of what like drew me into okay. you know doing modeling um i got into board games last summer when i broke my feet i when my brother-in-law plays a bunch of board games and i knew like a little bit of game theory and everything and then i'm like oh wow they just used all of these simple rules and just combined a bunch yeah to- yeah we're always making up games like to uh kind of explore ideas too i don't know if you can see there's that pile of legos in the corner we were just using that yesterday to explore ideas about maternal fetal conflict in the womb. So, <laughs> <laughs> wait a second. Okay. All right. So, now explain to me how you are using Legos to explain maternal uh, parent conflict. Uh, maternal fetal conflict. So, you know, there's this fetal. idea that um, uh, the maternal system is sort of trying to optimize investment over many different offspring um so not invest everything in one while from the offspring's perspective they'd rather get a little more for themselves so there's sort of this conflict over resource allocation and um that conflict has been implicated in like various Mm. pregnancy complications and things oh that's interesting Um, yeah and so basically um so so like my i'm the oldest and i'm just like um it's just super like um, tall and smart. Yeah, you and had first dibs, so. And then, and then you get down <laughs> to my my brother, who was the third, and he's just like got this leftover stuff. <laughs> he's the only one that listens to this podcast, so <laughs> I'm just I'm just wanting to get a few jabs in. And my brother, who does my website and helps me out tremendously. Um, Speaking of cooperation, yeah, <laughs> cooperation. <laughs> um, so that that's interesting. So, so that's an actual effect that that's taking place. So it's it's costly on. So when a female has a baby, it's costly. Like like there's permanent costs to having a child yeah and um there's actually some pretty cool work that is um being done in bolivia so with uh populations that are um you know in small scale societies uh where they find things like the number of children that a woman has is inversely proportional to the number of teeth that she has left what yeah (laughs) you have a bunch of babies and you're just your teeth will start falling out (laughs) well the idea is that somehow trading off you know with maintaining your body that it's Ah. reproduction is costly yeah and you know if you're in a small-scale society and you don't have same kind of availability of resources and you You don't have treadmills there and (laughs) All the fancy spas and everything that's else. That's right. It's the fancy spas, probably. That's the issue. 
your teeth just fall right out of your head then. <laughs> that, that is... Uh, hmm, that's interesting. So of all the things that ladies have to worry about, painful childbirth, ladies are, are sensitive about stress marks or uh, um, stretch marks and and um, sagging breasts, yeah. and all, all of these other things that, that women have to take into account. Teeth falling out on, on top of all of... Uh, and, and your kid's not going to... Uh, your kid's gonna be a teenager and he's uh, gonna take you for granted and yell at you and fight uh, uh, you have all that to worry about now also your teeth are, uh, are yeah out. yeah we've got it easy in the first world you know we don't have to what about my mom's gray hairs <laughs> that she blames all on me are those really my fault or that's not so much a pregnancy <laughs> thing as me being um a pain in the ass a or, pain in the yeah. ass i think throughout <laughs> More of a life history. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to be interrupting with my dumb jokes, but but that so so this is a lot of times you're just getting the Legos out and you're like you you have an idea about something and you're just like, well, let's see what the Legos have to say. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> It's like, okay, you're the fetus. I'm the mommy. Here's some pistachios and some Legos. Let's play. <laughs> I don't understand. So how are you modeling this? <laughs> so we're, it's partially prototyping for eventually, uh, you know, making an agent-based model. But it gives us a sense of an what an agent-based model is. The, a computer model where okay. we'll, you know, put in parameters and sort of explore what the outcomes are under, you know, different levels of resource availability or, you know, what different maternal status is going into pregnancy. Um, but yeah we like to we like to play <laughs> that's interesting i'm trying to form an idea of exactly what's going on when you're so so you have this idea that um that each each kid is incurring some permanent uh, cost on a mother and then you're how are you creating these models? Like, what's it? I'm, yeah, I'm well, like, uh, I'm a little lost. Sure. Right now. Sorry. <laughs> well, so, um, I'll, I'll just tell you the game is basically that we were playing with was basically okay. like, you know, the mom has a bunch of, uh, pistachios, which are basically her, you know, reserves. And then she okay. gets some number of pistachios every, you know, week. And then, um, you know, she can give them to the fetus and the fetus can build the body with the Legos. Um, and then we have uh, some variations that we're looking at for like the, how the conflict can play out, how the fetus can signal for more resources and how the mom can respond and um, sort of instantiating what's going on molecularly with some Legos. So that's sort of what we've been we've been playing with. Um, but, wow. Yeah. But that is a bit of a, you know, tangent from your initial question but it's fun well we, we i fun. love we tangents <laughs> yeah um well yeah. It, i'm just fascinated by this i also like that uh, that um someone's walking by and it's like what are what are they doing with these legos and pistachios and you're like well i'm figuring out the meaning of life is what i'm what <laughs> and, I'm and we doing. were eating some of the pistachios <laughs> too i have to admit yeah <laughs> you're messing up the data <laughs> 
Um, all right. So, so that's, that is very, I mean, my, my question was, what is computer modeling? Yeah. And I think that was a very good, um, explanation of, of how it works. So, so you, you figure out, you, you take your pistachios and your Legos and you rough out that idea. And then you set these parameters in a computer and what, what's the, um, the game of life is that what it's called? That's a really early um, sort of that was like the original kind of model. Yeah, yeah, a spatially explicit model. Maybe I'll try to put some examples on the website. This is something that I'm like, this would be a good idea, and then I don't get around to doing it. <laughs> Hopefully, I will because there's uh, all these cool um, videos of of you put in these very very simple programs of blocks. That's just like if if there's six blocks surrounding one unit that turns on and then if there's eight blocks it turns off or whatever parameters and then you just hit go and all of these um interesting uh like these blocks start organizing themselves in interesting um ways and that's the game of of life and um so that's kind of i mean this is i'm talking in basics obviously i i have no idea of how to conceptualize like the kind of stuff that you guys are working on right now no it's um you know a lot of what i try to do is really break things down to the simplest rules and so um for example is everything working all right yep all right Uh, sorry i sometimes (laughs) look at um the levels and uh and it distracts my guests um well, now I know. So next time you fine. do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of what we do is um, looking at what are the simplest rules that can give rise to cooperation. And, you know, my um, personal opinion is that a lot of um, a lot of our, you know, approach to cooperation in academia is kind of to assume that you need complexity in order for cooperation to be viable. Like you need a lot of memory or you need reputation and gossip and costly punishment and signaling and all this stuff. Um, And, you know, it's certainly true that humans use a lot of those things and that those facilitate cooperation. But I think there are some really fundamental and simple rules that also facilitate cooperation that have kind of been ignored. Um, And one of those is uh, basically the ability to leave, the ability to walk away from a partner that's not cooperating or a group that isn't cooperating or even an environment that's overexploited because people haven't been investing in it. So that walk away rule, that was what I did my dissertation on. And um, then what I sort of started uh, applying to looking at cancer once I went on to my postdoc. Just Mm. really simple conditional movement. You know, if things aren't good, you leave. And it turns out that walk away can do better than tit for tat. Um, You know, if you put it in a spatial world and you allow walk away to just leave a patch that has Um. a... Maybe, cooperative partner. Maybe we should set this up just a little clearer um, yeah, sure. for the listener. So, so the so there's a lot. There seems to be a lot of difficulty in explaining how cooperation can evolve in the first place. When and, and I talked with um, my guest, which is now a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, 
you'll remember talking about ants and bees a little bit. Um, but now, um, with with modeling how um, cooperation could start, if you have a large group, um, a lot of times um, there can be a lot of cheaters in there, and so it's too easy to be taken advantage of. And and so, how does cooperation start in the first place? And sometimes it can be as easy as a small group gets separated from this larger group and perhaps there's um, a bit of inbreeding um, or something will happen and then once there's kin relations and there's genes being shared, there's more cooperation within that small group and then once that small group gets reintroduced into another group, that cooperation can spread because it has some kind of footing and, and, and traction and it won't get screwed over as much as one individual trying to cooperate. So so there's a lot of different mechanisms and ways which cooperation can take off, but I think I think a, a normal listener not knowing any of this stuff would take it for granted us being humans and a somewhat cooperative species, just how difficult it can be for cooperation to take off in the first place. Um, but I, so I had no, I've never heard of this walk away um, idea before. So, so what is the idea? Walk away is basically, you know, it, it's kind of similar to tit for tat in a way because it looks at the previous behavior and then does something conditional on the previous behavior of the partner. But rather than stay and retaliate on the next round, if you defect, walk away says, all right, fine. If you're going to be that way, I'm just going to leave and find yeah. somebody else. Yeah, that's interesting because that's a big part of uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, game theory is is either implying that uh, that you know this game's only happening once, or it's happening a hundred times, or it's happening into infinity. Um, or there's like some set time, but it, but yeah, you can always be like. There can always be an in- individual that's like, uh, how about neither? I'm out of here. Yeah, and it turns out that when you have individuals who are leaving conditional on the cooperation of partners or groups, that that actually changes the dynamics of the whole population. So um, you basically get a situation where groups of cooperators are larger, more stable, more productive than groups that are less cooperative. And so that enhances the outcomes, you know, the paths for the cooperators. Yeah, because people are walking away if there's a bunch of dicks around that aren't cooperating. Yeah, that's and the, right. And and you can't um, form a like a strong community yeah. or yeah. whatever if everyone's just taking off on you. Yeah, and you know when it comes to things that are relevant to humans, you know, obviously as society has gotten more complex and we've gotten more settled and all of that. Um, There's more investment in staying in one place and being a part of an organization or a kin group or a village or whatever, you know, that entity is. And so maybe you can't use walk away as well when you get more social complexity. But, you know, when you have relatively permeable group boundaries and people can you know be in this group or that group um then walk away works pretty well to you know facilitate cooperation and um you know give higher payoffs for cooperators than defectors so if you're like i just don't like government i'm out of (laughs) here it's like well good luck with that (laughs) 
But if you um, don't want to be a part of the Girl Scouts anymore or something like that, you could be like, I'm too old for that. I don't. And you can. Yeah. Or if you, you know, work for a company and you don't like their policies, um, then you can leave and try to get a job at another company. So you might have walk away dynamics in the, you know, corporate world to a certain Ah. extent. And I haven't looked at that. I'm just, you know, yeah, yeah. well, that's interesting. So, yeah. And so because there's choice, then there's for a company, there's cost incurred with having to train new people and, uh, right. you know, with um, poor employee retention and everything. And and so I guess that applies to a lot of social group, like, say, um, say people are I, I mean, and if you look at the rates of church attendance seems to be going down and it seems like um it seems like often often church um is sometimes a little slow to change with uh usually the general population is a little more progressive than what they might Mm -hmm. be talking about in church and and then there's there's a certain tipping point where people are like oh this is now too extreme for me i'm going to walk away and once people start walking away all of a sudden church kind of loosens up what they're um preaching and yeah right yeah so belief system yeah you could certainly have you know changes in the group from which individuals are leaving or the institution you know as a result of the fact that individuals are leaving so you know those are all things that kind of follow from individuals following following a walk away strategy Mm -hmm. Uh how do you think that's changed over um human history going from like a hunter-gatherer society where i imagine there probably wasn't as much walk away potential whereas now like you said if you're not feeling this job okay i'll go and get a job somewhere else or pack up and move to a different part of the country or something because there might be more opportunities there yeah Um, you know i don't know that there's like a unidirectional effect you know on the ability to walk away over you know time or when you go from small to large scale societies because you know in um you know small scale societies sometimes you have sort of subgroups that um are you know maybe living near each other and you have some kin here and some kin there and you could be you know with group a or you could be with group b and you might walk away and join another group um versus you know, if your group is more isolated, there might be no option to leave and and join another group. Um, But probably there were, um, you know, at least the possibility of joining a different household that was an option. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think one of the things that's also changed as we've kind of scaled up society has been that, um, there's more and more investment in institutional infrastructure. And what that means is that, that and that's kind of a sunk cost for staying in your, in your group, right? If you're going to invest a lot in, you know, building a church or, mm-hmm. um, you know, creating bylaws or wh- whatever it is that, you know, those are I- investments in an institution that is supposed to have some stability. And if you leave, then you are sort of forgoing all of the investment that you made that might have future returns. 
So I think it's tricky. There's not like a, you know, just a rule of thumb about how the ability to walk away is changed over, Mm -hmm. you know, time because there's all these factors, I think, that affect, you know, when people decide to stay or leave. And, you know, one of those is what the outside options are. One of those is the sunk costs. Um, One of those might be, you know, threat of punishment too, right? If you are supposed to stay and you leave or if you have a commitment or obligation and you leave, that's also different from if you are leaving because someone's exploiting you. So, so it gets tricky really fast. Um, but so am I understanding it right though, that, um, when people are allowed to walk away, that does tend to lead to more cooperation within the group. Yeah, in the models. So where, you know, we have uh, basically individuals are playing a prisoner's dilemma game mm-hmm. or they're playing a public goods game, which is sort of a, you know, multiplayer version of a prisoner's dilemma game, a social dilemma. Um, but in the walkaway model, you know, we haven't yet looked at things like long-term investment where there's delayed returns from investing in, you know, being in a group. But we'd expect that kind of stuff to potentially change the payoffs for staying versus leaving so those are all you know future directions so if if you want to study that come be my graduate student (laughs) little plug (laughs) yeah um (laughs) um that's interesting so so what was what was the logic behind it that that kind of gave you this idea and and what's the logic that you think is driving um, these models or, or perhaps driving it in real? Is it, is it that the large group almost has to behave more if they want to keep members of the group once people are allowed to? Yeah, I mean, you could sort of think of it that way that, you know, if you're cooperating and you're in a larger group, you're also contributing to the stability of that group. Mm. Um, And if you're defecting, you're contributing to the instability of the group. Oh, I see. Hmm. That is interesting stuff. Um, I'm surprised that I've never... So how how new is this research? um, the original walkaway paper is from uh, 2004. So, hmm. um, and then the group wise model is um, 2011. Hmm. Um, it, so is this now, is this now like being taught as part of game theory? Um, I don't think it's being taught as part of game theory, but. Well, it should be. <laughs> I'm going to get out there. I'm going to change. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that. it's uh, um, David Buss said that he was putting it in the new F Psych textbook, so at least it's going to get out there a little bit. Nice, yeah, um, very cool. Um, all right, so then you, so how did you get into studying um, cell biology and cancer? Yeah, so I finished my you know dissertation on this walk away stuff, and mm-hmm. um, then I uh, left Philadelphia and went to Tucson to study ecology evolutionary biology for my postdoc. And I was working with John Pepper, and he had done some work on 
something called the environmental feedback model, which was basically the ecological equivalent of walk away. He was looking at like, you know, patches and um, animals eating on patches. And if they were eating a lot, then they were, you know, destroying the environment faster. If they were eating a little, they weren't destroying it as fast. And, you know, basically that you could actually get selection for restrained eating. And it, but it was a similar kind of walk away dynamic. So, so we kind of connected about that. And um, then when I realized uh, that he was doing a bunch of work on cancer evolution and um, you know, at, at that point it was sort of, you know, just uh, you know, big picture questions that he was interested in about how cells are evolving in the body. Um, but like, do you, do you think yeah. that, um, uh, this is probably now getting off top if, yeah, yeah. if I'm going into what his work is That's so fine. you can stop me and redirect me, but, um, but uh, do, do you think that could be happening with, um, with selection now? Whereas if, if people are kind of selecting against, um, obese people, they might inadvertently be selecting for genes that are, um, predisposing people toward restricting um, hmm. what they eat, or so. because part of the, I mean, the big problem with obesity is it's this um, mm-hmm. that uh, is evolution was was that we never had abundance before. There was no reason to stop yeah. eating right. and everything. I'm getting off topic <laughs> with all of that. Never it's mind. Interesting it, set of questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I have an interesting question and I want to ask it. And, uh, this isn't the conversation for that particular question. You should talk to Sarah uh, Hill though. Okay. Yeah. She's got some really interesting stuff on, um, how some people actually stop eating when their blood sugar is high enough and other people don't. Hmm. And in an evolutionary framework. So yeah, you'd like talking to her. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Back to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so cell biology. Yeah. So, so I, I just find it interesting that that led you to start thinking about cells. Yeah. So, so John and I, you know, sat down um, to sort of brainstorm about, okay, well, you know, other than the stuff that we had sort of already planned on working on together, what else would be cool to work on? And we realized that the, you know, walk away and environmental feedback models actually potentially applied to what was going on inside the body during somatic evolution and in particular had implications for what happens um, at the point when cells are becoming invasive and metastatic, right? Because they're leaving the tissue and going into new tissues. So... When we realize that, can you explain yeah. exactly like the process that's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. So you know, basically, cancer. Um, if you have cancer, the problem is not so much that the cells are proliferating, as it is that the cells are invading new tissues and um, getting into new organ systems. So you know, early cancer. Um, as long as, you know, it's pretty much encapsulated and you don't have invasion, usually you can do surgery and um, get rid of the tumor. But once it's invaded neighboring tissues or, you know, metastasized into new organs, then 
it's much harder to cure the patient. Um, and, you know, for some cancers, it's really just a matter at that point of you know, controlling it for as long as possible. There's not really a way to cure it if you have metastases all over your body. And so what... And this is, this is a just... Uh, cancer cells are an inevitable outcome of aging as well like uh it's one of yeah. the sad things about life is that if if you're lucky enough to live long enough you will get cancer no matter what basically. yeah i mean all of us are riddled with neoplasms they're just not to the point where they're you know causing what disease. are neoplasms they're you know uh sort of clonal expansions of cells where you know they're proliferation mutants so you've got you know a, a bunch of cells that have divided and um, are, you know, some sort of little lump. Um, they may be, you know, really small, but they're they're all over the place, and they're just they don't have enough mutations to really, you know, get so nasty. They're mm -hmm. just, you know, kind of being kept under control by our cancer suppression mechanisms. Our our immune system is keeping them under control. So. Well, yeah. What are the cancer suppression mechanisms that are naturally? in our bodies yeah we, there's a lot of them so um a lot of the um the cancer suppression is basically about controlling the cell cycle which is essentially um you know controlling the reproduction of the cells um their their division so uh there's a, a bunch of genes including you know p53 and the p53 family of tumor suppressor genes that are all um cell cycle um you know, they're, you know, basically regulating the cell cycle. So um, if the cell has too much DNA damage or um, if it's, uh, you know, behaving in other ways that it's not supposed to, then it's not allowed to sort of continue through the cell cycle and replicate. Uh -huh. um, and then there's, you know, there's DNA repair mechanism. That's another tumor suppressor mechanism. So, you know, if there is DNA damage, it gets, um, you know, found and fixed before the cell divides oh that's interesting um because it was always i guess it was always my um limited understanding about how uh, because uh, again um there's a another one of these questions to get over is is how how does cancer exist if if we're um it you know, a, a lot of people think when they think about evolution, they think survival of the fittest. Uh, you know, it's a lot of people don't think about reproduction necessarily, and and so um, so why don't we live longer? Why why would we get something like cancer? And um, I guess my partial understanding was that part of the reasoning why evolution hasn't weeded that out um, is simply because people have reproduced by the time um, cancer rolls around, and so so it doesn't kind of catch that. The reproduction is, is kind of the filter for filtering out bad genes, and because you don't have cancer until usually well after you've reproduced, it's not filtering that out. But it's... Um, but I guess I didn't, I didn't realize, and, and is that a little bit right? -ish? Yeah. In fact, I mean, it's even stronger than that. It's, it's actually looking like there may be some trade-offs between 
fertility and cancer suppression. So there are a number of studies that have come out that suggest that, you know, there might be... Highly fertile women and possibly men are are more likely to get cancer? Yeah, so there was a, um, a study with the Utah population database where they found that in a, um, a group of women, I think it was pre-birth control, that uh, there was a, you know, a, a association of fertility with mortality from breast cancer. So, and, and there's a couple other, um, uh, you know, studies that have come out that suggest similar things um, that, you know, there might be trade-offs with like P53 and some other, um, you know, tumor suppressor mechanisms. And um, me and my postdoc, Amy Body and um, Hannah Coco and a few other folks um, actually just have a, a manuscript that will be coming out soon uh, where we model the um, trade-offs between reproductive competitiveness and cancer defenses and sort of, uh, you know, explore how those um, trade-offs might actually work and shape, um, you know, how, how much cancer defense organisms have. Ah, um, man, that sounds like a whole less of megos and pistachios. <laughs> um, I, there, there's probably some M&Ms in there too, I'd imagine. I don't know how you could get down to the bottom of that without a variety bag of M&Ms. Um, so, so back to modeling the, um, uh, what specifically was it though you're modeling the other day with the, um, Oh, I'm, I'm oh, already the forgetting maternal that. fetal conflict and yeah, the Legos. Yeah. yeah. Normally that maternal fetal conflict just shoots out of my mouth whenever right, I want yeah. it to, but I'm having <laughs> trouble with it today. Um, so, so could it partially be that? So, so could it possibly be that the cost incurred, um, from having a child is affecting this or is, or is it the case that someone that is genetically predisposed to having higher rates of fecancy yet doesn't uh, is a virgin their whole life or or has birth control or whatever it might be and doesn't actually have children would they still be um affected by this would they still have a suppressed um cancer suppression mechanism yeah. that's a great question and it's a totally open question it's a chicken and yeah. egg kind of yeah thing, it's right? something well, I guess that... not chicken and egg <laughs> that's not the right analogy it's yeah it's, it's something that we're um trying to get at with um some of the the work that we're doing in my lab especially amy body um she's working on um you know, getting some more data from the Utah population database and also uh, looking at some other groups that we have access to where we can look at um, different rates of breast cancer and different types of breast cancer and see whether there are trade-offs with um, different, you know, fertility and other aspects of life history strategy. So, uh, so maybe in a year or two we'll have more to say about that. Well, hurry up because I need answers. Um <laughs> Well, no, it's, I mean, it's just so interesting because the difference between someone possibly being genetically predisposed to um, to having less cancer suppression mechanisms 
to the difference of having more children making you um, more vulnerable to cancer would be something that people are going to want to know about. Yeah. Yeah, Um, definitely. Hmm. Um, Well, that is fantastically interesting. So let's go back to... um, I'm I'm a little out of my mind now ever since we talked about neoplasms for whatever reason I have like some image of like futuristic like it got real futuristy sounding for a second <laughs> now there's like battles going on in my mind like Star Wars it's so there's some real dorky imagery going on in my mind as I'm trying to understand how um how cells work um so um can you uh, just uh, talk a little more about how um how cancer is I- your work with cancer <laughs> yeah well you know why don't i um sort of set it up with the evolution of multicellularity here because okay. then that kind of ties in with cooperation and cheating and how cancer fits in that bigger picture ah okay yeah so um Last oh, I think I saw some of your work about... Th- okay. Yeah. So last year, uh, I mentioned to you when we're on our way over here, I was at the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin, um, the Wissenschaftskolleg, and we had a working group on cancer evolution. And one of the things that we did was looked at cancer across the tree of life um, to, number one, see, you know, what are reports of cancer in all these different kinds of species, including, you know, algae and... Uh, you know, insects and everything. Um, so we we looked at, at a lot of the different branches of the tree of life. Obviously, we couldn't do a thorough review of everything, but we tried to at least get a, a nice swath. Um, and as part of that, we also sort of asked the question to ourselves of like, well, you know, what is it um, that uh, sort of allows for multicellularity to be effective and how is that breaking down with cancer because in a lot of ways you know cancer is kind of the breakdown of functional effective multicellularity so um we basically uh so what's multicellularity exactly it's rather than you know having like one cell going around and doing stuff it's having multiple cells all working together in order to accomplish so every, everything's multicellular. So you're just talking about the difference between a single celled organism and a multicellular. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought maybe you're talking about something else that was specific to species. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's more complex forms of multicellularity oh, okay. and less complex forms. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you see sort of as you scale up multicellularity is more complex forms of cooperation that are really necessary um, in order for that multicellularity to work and more and more complex ways of suppressing cheating, right? If you're going to have a huge entity, right, and you have billions of cells, um, how do you keep everything in check? Well, you actually have to have these mechanisms for detecting cheating and the rules of multicellularity, basically. And that's kind of what cheat- what cancer suppression is. Um, so, you know, a, a multicellular body that's working well has, you know, proliferation inhibition. So cells, you know, aren't just 
dividing like crazy. There's some inhibition of that. There's some control of cell death. So those are sort of like demographic controls that affects like which cells are going to proliferate or not and which ones are going to live or die. Um, what are the mechanisms that regulate Yeah, this? a lot of that is cell cycle control. So, you know, P53 that I was talking about earlier, um, at least for, um, you know, a lot of uh, mammals and some other species, you've got, you know, P53 is a big one. Uh, but you have other cell cycle control mechanisms in other species too. So it's, a, it's sort of one of the first things that has to evolve in order to become multicellular become multicellular is some control on the cell cycle so what's is there like so there's kind of some if then um programming in the cells that's somehow um restricting just like in the game of life uh, we're talking about if there's x number of cells turned on around a cell, turn it off. Yeah, exactly. Actually. In fact, one of the cancer suppression mechanisms is something called contact inhibition, which is you don't proliferate if you have a neighbor right there next to you. Oh, but if you're, you know, you don't have a neighbor, then you proliferate. And that's one of the ways that wound healing happens is because, you know, you have contact inhibition as this kind of if then rule that allows for, you know, suppressing cancer, but at the same time, enabling wound healing. Um, I, I um, have been dealing with a lot of wound healing yeah. <laughs> lately. Is, is, that, um, is that something that can affect um, things down the line? Like, um, like say, say, say your body has to do a lot of wound healing. Um, you're in a fire or you had to go through a lot of surgeries or something like that. Is is there, is, is the cost from that? Does that, um, does that affect anything down the line with like susceptibility to cancer or anything like that? Do you know? Well, I know that there's been some work on, um, sunburn and that when you have burns, then you actually often will get, um, clonal expansions of, uh, cells that have p53 mutations which you know you could think of as one of the first hits on the way to cancer um, my guess is that that's probably the case for other types of wound healing as well i just don't know that literature off the top of my head hmm. i'm gonna get foot cancer i think because <laughs> of all this stuff they've done to my foot well actually um you know, I would like to talk a little bit about, I don't know if it's your area of expertise, but just uh, evolutionary mm-hmm. um, medicine. Um, this is a, this is kind of a relatively new field. And I, I think a lot of doctors probably aren't really even trained well, that well in evolutionary medicine. And, and um, so as as someone who recently had a bone infection and uh, was on a series of antibiotics and and you asked me if it's something that I got in the hospital i mean there potentially the hardware that they put in my foot was infected in the first place and that kicked things off and um and and you read a lot about um you know that, that's the worry they want to get people out of the hospital too because there's staph infections cuz things are too clean for the first time ever 
Um, so, so how how is um, how is evolutionary medicine? This is kind of too broad of a question, probably changing um, our modern medical practices. And my main question is, should I be on probiotics right now or not? <laughs> I don't know, but maybe you should have had yogurt instead of beef jerky for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely should have had yogurt instead of beef jerky. No matter what my yeah, circumstances right, exactly. are, I think I should have had yogurt instead of weird processed i guess yogurt's processed everything's processed um so uh, is that way too broad of a question Um, uh no i mean i can say that uh, you know when it comes to infectious disease there's certainly been a lot of um interest in evolutionary approaches and a lot of the research that's has been done and is currently being done um does take a evolutionary approach um, it's not always the most empirically grounded um, evolutionary approach, unfortunately, but at least the sort of paradigm is there for using, you know, evolution to understand infectious disease. Um, and with regard to cancer, it's a you know, really rapidly growing field, evolution in cancer. And um, there are... A number of studies underway uh, at Moffitt Cancer Center and other places to actually um, treat tumors. Um, right now, this is in in mouse models, um, but to, to sort of treat the the cancer, taking into account the evolutionary dynamics of how it's going to respond to therapy. And um, we actually have some modeling that we're doing um, to sort of go alongside with those studies to examine what is actually happening um, in terms of the evolution of the strategies of the cells, basically, when you have different kinds of chemotherapy regimens, because you're exerting selection pressures on them, right, with chemo. Ah. So, yeah. So I think there's a lot of exciting, you know, opportunities there. Um, is this in uh, much the same way, like the the, the reason why you um, have to... S- you want to stay on antibiotics for the full time that they tell you to, because um, otherwise, uh, your your antibiotics can kill off like most of the infection, but there'll still be a um, a little left that wasn't killed off, and that that can become much stronger because it was resilient, and then um, and then it's hard to get rid of it. Yeah, well, all of that is actually not true. Is, is that yeah, a, so if you look at um, some of the work of Andrew Reed, he's been one of the sort of pioneers of um, applying evolutionary models and doing empirical experiments to look at the evolutionary dynamics of resistance. He's mm. actually shown that if you, you know, if you do the regimen that is, you know, recommended that that um, does worst of all of the other ones that he tested, that it's actually... Um, what, what you do is often apply really, really strong pressure uh, for favoring the resistant cells or the resistant viruses, um, which is exactly what you don't want to do. You want to have a sensitive population there so that you can hit it down with your treatment. Oh. Yeah. Well, so, that makes more sense to me, too. Yeah. Oh, I'm so mad at my doctors right now. <laughs> So you would want to um, 
the, I mean, I imagine case by case bases are, are different, but, but you would maybe want to take the antibiotic to make whatever symptoms subside or whatever. But even that's like, uh, I, I think a, a lot of, um, let, let's look at it from this point of view. I think a lot of people think of a fever or even throwing up or whatever it might be as something that is bad. Mm-hmm. It feels bad, so it must be bad for you. But that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes yeah. that's your body taking care of you. Yeah, but you know, uh, it's sort of funny that uh, Andrew Reed, you know, he heretically says that, you know, what he does is he just takes his antibiotics until he feels better and then he stops. <laughs> Which, of course, that's what you know doctors say you shouldn't do, and right. that's what gives you the worst outcomes. But um, the you know experiments that he's been doing and the computer models that his um, run really tell a different story than what the sort of standard paradigm is out there. Ah, so take it until your foot swelling stops, um, <laughs> in, in my case, and then, um, and then lay off. And if it starts coming back again, then take antibiotics again. But if you just keep on taking it for longer than you need to, then the only thing remaining will be the resistant one. Yeah. Rather than... If there's some resistant ones, but there's um, sensitive. Some, some sensitive ones in there that, yeah. that are kind of um, trumping or, or keeping, yeah. keeping the resistant ones under control. Yeah, usually resistance is costly in some way. And so if you remove the selection pressure of the antibiotic or the chemo or whatever, then the sensitive population usually then overtakes the resistant one. Ah. Or at least, you know, when there is some cost to resistance, then this works where you can kind of okay. pl- play them off each other in a way. All right. Now I have a clearer understanding of what's happening. I think when, can, so can you go back to what, what you were saying again with the, the cancer therapy? Yeah. So this, um, you know, approach uh, that's really been pioneered by Bob Gatenby at Moffitt Cancer Center. He, um, he calls it adaptive therapy. And the idea with adaptive therapy is, um, you know, at least currently in the mouse models, what he's doing is just treating the tumor when it grows past a certain size and otherwise leaving it alone. And what he's finding is that the amount of um, chemo that's needed to keep the tumor at a constant size is actually decreasing over time. Really? It's sort of becoming tame. (laughs) Ah, taming the tumor. There you Is go. <laughs> the title of his book. It should be. It should be. Yeah. That, I mean, that would change the way that they are treating everything, right? I mean, that's that's quite contrary to what's happening now, right? Which is yeah, you know, there's things are starting to change, yeah, you know, slowly but surely. Um, and I have a I have a good friend, actually, a childhood friend who through a completely different route also ended up as uh, um, working on cancer. Um, and she is at Memorial Sloan Kettering and she does sort of, you know, uh, pharmacology and drug combinations and, you know, treats uh, cancer patients largely. And she said that there, um, at least among the younger um, clinicians, there is much more of an appreciation for the fact that when you're talking about advanced cancer, probably the best you can do is control rather than to try to hit it with everything to cure it. Um, that that's not necessarily going to be 
the best for the patient or even, um, you know, the best for extending their lifespan. Um, so, yeah, I especially think the way things are right now with with radiation being this kind of it's it's not a sniper, you know, mm-hmm. taking out the bad cells. It's a shotgun killing off. Yeah, that, hopefully that's the bad better. cells that's and then everything too. around it. Yeah, um, the you know the the technology is continuing to you know advance at a rapid rate in terms of you know being able to target. But the problem is once you have metastasis, you've got you know cells disseminated all over, and there's just no way to even find them. You know, how do you find ten cells in you know the brain or the liver or the lung? It's not possible. Hmm. Well, okay. So um, I want to address that before we do, um, just because we're getting toward the end here. Uh, the the charity of the week. Um, yes. And I'm hoping it has something related to cancer, possibly. Yes. Yes. The American Cancer Society. American Cancer Society. Um, and. I think you can go to americancancerfund.org or you can just type in cancer.org, everybody. Just type that in your computer. How easy is that? And go there. Yeah, and always go to the herewearepodcast.com website and there will be links um, there. So um, so can you explain, uh, just before we wrap up, what was that the last, um, uh, I forgot the word that you were using, the um, metastasized or the disseminated cells all over yeah Yeah. so what's happening again yeah so you know basically what's happening is inside the body you're getting selection for cells dispersing Hmm. so you've got you know a primary tumor it grows and grows the you know environment gets so poor there's no oxygen on the inside and the cells start moving and in fact you know cells are able to upregulate movement in low oxygen conditions. It's just, you know, there's this factor, uh, it's called HIF1-alpha, and when things are hypoxic, which means low oxygen, it goes up and that increases cell motility. So cells are literally walking away, leaving, or, you know, dragging themselves away, I guess, because that's how they, you know, that's how they move. Um, And they'll, you know, invade neighboring tissues and, you know, colonize whole new organs. And that's really a parallel to what happens in, um, you know, ecology with invasive species. They, you know, are in one environment, but if they, uh, you know, have the ability to move and colonize a new environment, um, then they can, you know, sometimes take over and have devastating effects. And it, and so this walkaway effect, is that parallel to the other, the walkaway modeling that you were doing? Yeah, that, there's, the same... there's some parallels there. So, um, you know, there's both the potential for getting very simple, just dispersal evolution, which is, you know, cells being more inclined to move because um, the environment is, you know, poor and uncertain and all of that. Um, but also, you know, there can be selection on the cells for their, uh, you know, likelihood of leaving. Um, and also, you know, and, and this is something that hasn't really um, been fully explored, but, you know, if cells are, you know, able to an advanced cancer actually 
form sort of little colonies that are more or less cooperative, then you might actually get selection among those little colonies of cancer cells in the body for the ability to grow and get blood vessels and produce public goods that allow those little cell colonies to survive and thrive in our tissues. And that's a totally underexplored possibility. But, you know, cooperation theory would say, hey, you know, you there's probably a metapopulation there. And therefore, you could be getting, you know, between group selection and conditional movement could be facilitating that too. That's so interesting. Because like, so what's what's the generation of a cell? Usually, um, you know, in cancer, I think it's about usually 24 hours or so for the cell cycle. I think something around that between 24 and 72, sort of depending on. So there's a lot of uh, yeah, there's a lot of generations yeah. for evolution within your yeah. body and within the cells. Yeah, more huh. than the whole you know history of Homo sapiens. If you add it all up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I've had um, like I had. Um, uh, Marlene Zook talking on and just the kind of general idea of, of um, you know, maybe part of the reason we re- reproduce is to kind of change the lock and key system on on the immune system to um, to defend ourselves against this bacteria, which changes very quickly. But I, you know, I wasn't really. You, you don't think about uh, we have a tendency to think about ourselves in this static state you mm-hmm. know um this thing shane that i am is like a predictable <laughs> but but there's you're mostly there's microbes all of this, shane yeah mostly <laughs> you're microbes mostly microbes that are just dying <laughs> off and springing up all of the time yeah that's, that's amazing yeah. um well, that's very cool. I think that this... Um, I, I, give me some feedback on this one, listeners. I don't know if it's because this is my third one of the day. I, we got into some pretty complicated stuff. I think we did a pretty good job of making it clear and explaining. I learned a lot. This was fun. Um, and, and this was a lot of... Uh, yeah, this was very interesting and super fun. Um, so, yeah, give me some feedback. Let me know what you think, what questions... Um, you have it took me a little while to get some clarity to um, arrive at some of these ideas and now I'm forever going to think about things differently which is the point of the show hopefully Um, and so thank you Athena Actipas thank you very much did I nail it again yeah you nailed it wow I um, I like Axelrod better as a name. I think it's a cool sounding name, Axel. (laughs) I'm not going to change my name. Axel, come on. (laughs) Actipus. I've never heard an Actipus before. It was lovely to meet you. Athena. I wish there's more people named Athena um, in the world. There are in Greece. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah. So (laughs) well done, Greece, for spreading that name around. And thank you guys for listening. Go to the herewearepodcast.com website. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you so much for going and reviewing my podcast, by the way. And if you can do the same for my album, please, please, please. That'll help me out so much. Uh, The more successful 
um, these things are for me and albums and specials and everything else. The more of them I will get to do. Um, and, and so that, and it will just open more doors for me. So that means you will get more of me and I will get better and work harder for you. And it around and around it goes. And so let's work together. Uh, there, there's like 71, um, ratings on iTunes for the podcast now. So we're almost to a hundred. That means another bonus episode will be coming out at a hundred and there's like 60 written reviews or something. So it's, it's getting up there. Um, and that'll be another bonus episode. So please keep those coming and make sure, um, and write me if you have any suggestions, any other incentives that I can do to get you guys to write me reviews on iTunes and Amazon for my album, My Big Break, please make sure and listen to it and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. It is so good. If you guys don't like this album, you just probably aren't going to be a fan of my stand-up. Um, it is really good. I'm so happy with it. It's exactly how I wanted it to be. And um, that does not happen very often in stand-up. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm so excited and I'm so grateful that, uh, that you guys are always so supportive and make sure and tune in next week. We, we talk about, um, we talk about locusts and, uh, a whole bunch of other ways that the, um, world is going to die, um, <laughs> So it's uh, a very interesting and and kind of a dark episode. It was it was a, a little bit challenging as well. It was uh, a lot of stuff that I didn't know um, much about. But um, but yeah, tune in. Oh, tomorrow? Did I say next week? It's tomorrow. The bonus episode. So make sure and check that out. And I will talk to you guys then. <laughs> I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and he uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, he's in a castle in Poland. He's like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm I'm a a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a bat. I'm a a bat bat that helps people. (laughs) I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a. I'm a. I don't know what you want from me. 
And, uh, my, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I, I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> <laughs> 